Hello and welcome to Minding Your Mind, all about your mind and how it works, mental illness and mental health. With me is Professor Ian Hickey, psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. And today we're talking about your brain and how it changes from the time you're born to now through until you get to be, let's be optimistic, 100. Is it like a bell curve? Does our brain start out not being able to do many things at all than as we become kids, teenagers, adults every year, it can do a bit more till at some point it meets the top of the curve and it starts to go down the other side, slow down, and every year it gets a little less good and some parts work less well than they used to, or is it not like that at all? I really have no idea. Um, Ian, when we're born, our brains, well, they're not up to much, are they? What can, what can they do? Oh, quite a lot, James, and they've been doing okay. quite a lot before then. I mean, why start from when you're born? Let's go back a few months, okay? Mm. They've been doing stuff in utero. You know, they've been listening, they've been doing, they've been developing. And throughout the whole of brain development, they're affected by what's going on around it. So brain development itself is affected by the environment, by what is happening. So things you can get, the brain can be exposed to things in utero, bad things like alcohol and toxins, oh, infection, yes. or good things like really healthy mums make healthy baby brains in particular kinds of ways. And then, you know, people in the later stages of pregnancy, when the brain's not that different from what it is before it's immediately born, you know, it's listening to stuff, it's responding to stuff, it's coordinating stuff, it's starting to move stuff, it's moving little hands and feet around. For those who have been kicked while pregnant, you know, it's doing stuff, it's moving, it's starting to coordinate stuff, then you get born. And from that point onwards, all right, at that point, it hasn't got many coordinated activities together. Hmm. And as long as you keep feeding it and you keep nurturing it and you keep doing stuff, it starts to form all sorts of connections to try and take the wiring from chaos. I don't know. I've had the builders in the house recently. Stuff's all over the place. Nothing appears to be coordinated with anything. I'm sure it's all there, but nothing's actually working with anything in a useful way. So the brain's got to go connect all the bits all over the place. And it starts with a few basic things like feeding, sleeping, controlling you know, bladder and bowel and other sorts of stuff. You know, what we might call some basic stuff. It's got to get straight. And, in fact, sleep-wake cycles, which are very short in babies, for those who have poor parents, note they're only four hours and don't really care what the day is doing and they're not really seeing something like sunlight before and they're not really seeing darkness and they don't really know what nighttime is. You know, it's got to get into cycles, it's got to start to respond to the environment, got to develop circuitry that responds to different things, responds to feeding. Can't be fed all the time, got to have periods where it doesn't, you know, do stuff. So the behavioural patterns and then the basic functions, as you see in the first year of life, those things that have to do with motor movement, those things that you know, can sit up, can start to make noises, can start to respond, what you see in terms of facial expression and start to respond to the environment in emotional types of ways really matter. So you've got all that basic stuff going on in the first year and then you see in the second year you're starting to crawl around and do stuff and vocalise and start to grab stuff and start to interact with the environment in different ways. So that sort of responsiveness and sort of coordinating what is happening in the wider world, all of that sort of stuff's going on. So in the first five years, just to take this first bit. Can I, well, just on that, is it fair to say there's kind of three things happening? One is movement, motor skills. One is thinking about stuff and one is emotions, feeling about stuff. Or have I left some important ones out? No, you took the first two. I'm not sure about the thinking one. The idea that the idea that babies are thinking a lot, 
you know, as we would call it, thought. Interesting kind of idea. Uh. Parents think that babies are thinking a lot. Babies appear to go, feed me, hold me, keep me warm, protect me. It's all about me. I don't know that babies are thinking too much about you. Okay, they are just doing it. Interestingly, they've got different temperaments. Like yeah. Some need to be held more, some sleep more, some are calmer, some are more irritable, some don't settle. They've clearly got their own temperamental characteristics. For any of you, some of us have, quite a lot of them, will know that they're all quite different from the moment mm. they're born. You didn't do it. You didn't do it. They were born that way, okay? They've got temperaments, and you're doing your best you can to respond to those different temperaments in different ways, to actually allow them to feed, to settle, to sleep, to grow. So moving, controlling basic bodily functions, feeding and responding. And But the emotional bit, James, yes. So actually the emotional connection bit. So breastfeeding being one of the best examples of this, where breastfeeding, which relies on particularly mums, staring into the faces of little kitties and the little kitties locking on their particular face, is actually then has this marvellous hormone, oxytocin, running around, which assists breastfeeding for the breast to actually squirt milk out. Baby doesn't suck milk. It gets squirted with milk through oxytocin release, but oxytocin runs around the brain and is the kind of attachment hormone. Makes mum love the baby, makes the bub love mum as they stare deeply into each other's eyes as the is the hormone of emotional kind of connection reinforced mm. by breastfeeding. Pretty tricky system. Attaching one to the other in close ways. So those great Madonna pictures of mum staring into the baby's eyes and the baby staring back and smiling and everyone's contentment, you know. That's actually got a neurobiological kind of basis, a brain development and key bits, a key circuitry being reinforced by the release of that particular hormone. So breastfeeding does a lot of good things from a nutrition, from an infection, but also from an emotional development, actual point of view. Important things, as does holding and cuddling and keeping close and physical contact during those areas. So one of the really important things about early childhood is the enrichment during that. Now, we know this in humans, but we also have lots of animal experiments. The richer the environment in the first few years of your life, the many more synaptic connections. Now, that's the connections between nerve cells you form. So you want to put as many things in. See it as the fertilizer in the garden. There's more, as much stuff as you can chuck in. Now, this is chucking more people in too, more faces, more groups, more languages, more sounds. Every new thing, every new smell, every new flower, every new experience, every new face, babies make new connections in relation to that. So it's a huge input, period. And that, that in sense, encourages brain development. Mm. So don't get out the flashcards and make them learn to count to 10 before they're six months old or force them to read English novels before they're one year old. Forget it. Do everything else, just as many different things as possible. And, in fact, if you want to introduce them to music, you want to introduce them to sport, you want to introduce them to dance, you want to introduce them to everything you can, do as many things as you can to enrich that environment because brains will make connections in relation to each new novel stimulus. But I think what you're suggesting is focus on the motor skills and how how the the kid might be feeling rather than getting them to learn stuff. I mean, perhaps five to ten, there's plenty of – that's when the thinking perhaps kicks in big time, learning to read, learning four times table, all that stuff. So the emotional bit is on from day zip. Well, actually, yeah. even earlier. Be nice oh. in utero. Be nice in utero. But certainly from day on, day zero onwards, there's many people involved in the kid's life who are nice and calm and warm and cuddly – Excellent. The thinking bit of the brains, actually interesting what you say about primary school. Well, 
you can watch the brain develop in different periods. So the brain actually develops synapses, which is the connections. Then as, as it goes into development, it then prunes. So the brain is incredibly energy intensive. All these synapses things, all these connections, use up an incredible amount of glucose, sugar, and oxygen, energy, right? In fact, it's so active that if it kept growing at that rate, we couldn't do anything else. We couldn't get out of bed. We'd be overwhelming. It's such an energy user. So what it starts right. to do is it starts to prune, not to have to think about walking, or not have to think about control over bladder and bowel, or not have to think about certain kind of things. It just makes them automatic movements. It becomes very energy efficient. So when you look at what gets pruned first, it is these basic functions of walking, talking, breathing, control over bladder and bowel and all these sorts of things, and those uh, wanting to speak. Simple bits. And then you see in the visual cortex, the bits where we see with, actually focusing. You notice how babies don't appear to focus so much early on, but they do pretty quickly learn to focus and recognize and see. And then sound and develop. You see the auditory cortex developing in terms of sound and speech. At the back of the brain, visual cortex at the side of the brain in terms of the auditory cortex, what you hear and speech. And then you start to see in primary school, the bits that you call reading and writing, these sort of communication type bits, those bits of the brain are maturing. You can See the maturation happening. And then the thinking bit, the frontal bit, comes last, right? Right. Okay. <laughs> comes last. So, yes, kids are having thoughts, but not very complicated ones. You know, at the end of the checkout of the supermarket, the chocolate, I want it. <laughs> you know, not why should you have it? Why should you not have it? I just want it. I love seeing those conversations between parents and three- and four-year-olds at the supermarket, you know. Now, you don't really want that. If you eat that, you will get fat and you'll develop diabetes and it's terribly bad for you and you really should learn to. <laughs> that kid ain't listening at all. That kid just wants that chocolate. <laughs> so that's more a feeling than a thought, I think. Yes. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Chocolate, good. Tastes great. Let's have more. Mm. What's, what could possibly be wrong with having more of those things that we enjoy? And You see kids get preoccupied with things that feel good, that smell good, that taste good. They just, like dogs, they'll just keep consuming them as but long as they're a, available. There's a, there's a lot of thinking involved in working out that a whole heap of squiggly lines on the page actually mean Minding Your Mind, a podcast by James O'Loughlin and Ian Hickey. So learning to read and write and learning language, learn many languages. I'm not, learning language is interesting. Your auditory discriminatory cortex, your capacity, capacity to differentiate different languages like actually, so if you want to learn Chinese and Japanese and English and several other languages, for God's sake, have exposure to the sounds of that before age two or three. It becomes very hard after that to tell the difference because you become attuned to the environment that you've grown up in, you know, and it becomes much harder to actually discriminate those sounds that make those different languages as you get older. So this is the, do the exposure bit when you're young. Then as you go on, James, then yes, as those other bits of the so-called association cortices, the bits that actually make sense of squiggly lines and funny sounds and call that language and call that writing and call that literature, you know, that develops during what we would call primary school, yeah, during those periods from 5 to 12 in particular, that, that organisation of those things into the symbolic things that we understand, at least recognising the symbols, recognising they what we mean by those things is happening. And, of course... Simple thinking patterns about all of that, of what, what the sense of it, what is connected with what is going on. So the, those association bits. But the more conceptual bits, what does it all mean? What lies behind all of that? Why do we have all those things? Unfortunately, 
doesn't really come on until late childhood, early puberty. And then it takes a really, really, really long time. And in some people, often boys, <laughs> quite a long time, like come back when they're 23 or 25 and we're still seeing actually those frontal bits actually developing. And also the inhibitory bits, the bits that go, stop, that's a really bad idea. Don't do Risk that. Assessment. That is obviously going to kill you if you do that. Mm. Don't do it. And don't do it for drugs. Don't do it for alcohol. Don't do it for jumping off buildings. Don't do it for driving cars fast, whatever. Yeah, the inhibitory bits that override the emotional bits. Geez, that feels good. Geez, that's an excellent thing to do. I think I'll do that again. Now, what, what could possibly go wrong? What's the risk associated with that? So that learning bit, the inhibitory bit, that actually doesn't come on the stop button, if you like, for a lot of people until mid-adolescence. So there's actually things going right on, not just up after puberty, but right through the adolescent period. So this brain development bit, minus nine months to 25 years. Are you feeling sorry for every parent at this point? Minus nine months to 25 years is a really long time. So, so let's Infants. focus on the teenage years, and a lot of interesting stuff is happening then, and one of the biggest is a movement from uh, a person seeing themselves as part of a family unit to establishing their own identity. And I think this is right, that when teenagers and parents have been known to argue, and when they do... Part of the parent thinks, I'm right here and I want to convince them I'm right. But then there is also the thing going on that actually what might be happening here is this kid needs to establish their identity separate from our herd, separate from the flock. So they're picking a fight about something to show that they are and that is a natural and normal thing. Yes. Got to leave the nest. Got to leave home. Yeah. Got to get out. Sorry, parents, there's a warning here. Got to go out and have sex with somebody else to reproduce. Got to go out and form other relationships. Got to live elsewhere. So developing relationships outside. Now, it's really interesting in terms of brain development, quite a lot of fascinating experiments done about which bits of the brain light up. Now, these are, again, the primitive bits. Primitive is the wrong word. The basal parts of the brain, the emotional parts of the brain, the bits that I love, the bits mm. that just work, you know, that say what's important for fear, for love, for engagement, for what feels right. Those bits of the brain in the temporal lobe, in adolescence, stop responding to parents and they respond to others. <laughs> 15-year-old brains are very sensitive to what other 15-year-olds have got to say and others and become very insensitive to that same old whinging parent oh, I've heard a thousand times and not, not responding. Parent getting angrier and angrier. Teenager not responding. But somebody down the road, some 15-year-old down the road or some other set of people's so, – so you see this literally, a change in sensitivity about which faces, which people have, the sa have more emotional salience for teenagers to the external mm. world. Don't give up, parents. Hang in there. What you've got to say is very sensible. Hang in there. You're still important. But there is a natural shift in attention or in this emotional attention to the forming of attachments – Emotional attachments elsewhere with these novel other things called other people, some of whom are quite attractive in various ways and people want to form relationships with them and get close and cuddly with them instead of you. But that's, yeah, mid-adolescence, that's the period for that. And then it, what is really interesting... I mean, so, so that means it's almost, if that is happening, a movement away from the family unit to a a, a different unit of people your own age, it's almost... 
ridiculous to think that for a parent to think you can get through that period without there being conflict and disagreement because there has to be conflict and disagreement to help the teenager establish their own identity. What do I agree with them about? What do I disagree with them about? Yep. So just backing up two or three years with a sort of 15, 16-year-old fight, backing up to 12, mm. 11, 12, 12, 13, of course, the other bit that comes on that point is emotionality, right? You know, primary school kids are marvellous because they hit things and fight things and yell things, but they're not really that emotional often. But boy, puberty happens. Whoa. The emotional parts of the brain are actually now fully in gear, you know, so the emotional response to events has come in. So not only is this I want to do whatever I want to do with people outside of the family, there's also levels of emotionality and and emotional control, which is a bit out of control, a bit all over the place in early puberty having to be incorporated into the thing. So, you know, fully mature humans like ourselves, James, we've got this emotionality and cognitive bits and other bits all integrated, you know. (laughs) We've got some idea about our own sort of emotionality and whatever. But for kids, 12, 13, 14-year-olds, that's just coming online. Hmm. And But at the same time, at the same time, the frontal cortex, the, the thinking bit, the creative bit, the bit that says, no, that's a really dumb idea, the bit that considers the future, it's developing in girls faster than boys as a general principle because puberty starts as a general principle earlier in girls. So it sort of happens alongside puberty and then happens for the next 10 years. Uh, it's coming along going, now, 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 yes, I am yelling at my mum and particularly yelling at my dad, but there's also a kind of, um, maybe this is not entirely reasonable, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe there actually is actually. So it's not true that, that teenagers are completely brainless or unreasonable or whatever else. They're actually moving from um, not having many thoughts to actually having more thoughts. It just takes a while to actually integrate all those bits <laughs> into a coherent right. whole. We see this at university, which is fascinating. Since we kick kids out of school at, you know, 17, 18 or whatever, it's fascinating to see first-year university students 17, 18 and then see them at 22, 23. They're completely different people. You know, actually that cognitive bit of the brain, that really that frontal lobe bit continues to develop and that integration of these particular characteristics we're talking about is much more obvious in 23-year-olds than it is in 17-year-olds. So, so completely different in what way specifically? This capacity for... Firstly, the integration of the whole lot, the emotionality, the cognitive thing, and the other things, but actually the development of these other cognitive characteristics, you know, different kinds of deep thoughts, creative thoughts, conceptual thoughts, continues. You see this in other things like mathematics. For those who believe in uh, hothousing your kids for selective school exams before age eight, because you're going to make smarter kids. No. Um, no. <laughs> you're going to make kids who are very good at exams at eight, Right rote learning, doing particular things. What we see all the time is kids who come back at 15, 16 who've been rote tested, you know, trained with an inch of their life in math, science, whatever, and they get to the bit, the hard bit, which becomes not rote learning based but becomes actually understanding the concept, which I don't understand, which lies behind maths or lies behind language or lies behind literature. And guess what? Some of the months are good at it because actually it's a different kind of brain kind of capability. And a lot of the kids who are said to be hopeless at it actually are really good at it later on because the task has changed into more complex thinking. So you see this at university, which is a great example of the interaction then between teaching at those areas is absolutely – if anyone thinks you're going to get taught at university, forget it. We just provide the circumstances in which, you know, really smart young brains can develop these sort of capabilities and become incredibly creative in using the tools of that sort of stuff. And as that happens, that rich environment, then brains develop further. 
So continuing why, why universities are really good for some kids, not for everybody, doesn't work for everybody. Other things, trades, other educational experience-based learning is a better way of learning for other kids than coming to university. But you do see in the university cohort this marvellous development of the conceptual brain between 17 and 23. Okay. So then what goes on from 23 to, say, 40? Right. So now we got it, okay? Now, this is the bad bit. Now we've got to keep it. (laughs) All right? Right. So the brain the rest of your life still depends on environmental enrichment, right? you still got to do stuff to keep it. So there's still a use it or lose it. Now, from 25 to 85 (laughs) – You've got to be mentally active to hold on to it. And you've still got to reduce the number of things you do to kill it, to kill off brain connections. So we know the things that are kill off. Too much alcohol, other substances, sleep deprivation, uh, lack of exercise, lots of other things kill off brain, but mainly not being engaged with other people. I mean, things like unemployment and, and lack of in mental stimulation, if you like, actually kill off brain cells. So brain cells also, brain cell connections also retreat during these particular periods, if you're not doing stuff. Hmm. So the idea of just going and relaxing on a beach and everything will be fine, it won't. Your brain will shrink. Its connections will shrink. Nothing will happen. So you need to be actually mentally engaged. You need to be doing things, including novelty. Now, it gets hard, of course, because sometimes after 25, people decide to have children and parent and work. Well, that's novelty. (laughs) Novelty challenging. It's also sleep deprivation, additional stresses, additional challenges. But actually, yes. The novelty bit, you bet, of those particular things. Now, most people in terms of their working lives and other lives, they are doing a lot of that, whether they want to or not, between 20. Your physical health during that period, though, matters a lot too. When you're going to think at 25, you're going to think, okay, okay, I've finally got this brain thing. i got to keep it now. Now, you know, humans weren't really designed to live to 85, let's face it. You know, humans were yep. supposed to live to about 20. Reproduce. 20? Yeah. We'll come to this. How long do you think? How really? long do you think your teeth? How long do you think your teeth last? Well, longer than twenty years. Not most of thirty gone. You know, a whole lot of functions that start to fall. Now, actually, the brain of all things, you know, you just think about when your joints give out, when your muscles give out, mm. and other bits give out. Most people have been in very physical activities. You know, musculoskeletally, they've had it by forty. Teeth have had it by thirty. You know, all sorts of other stuff. We weren't really designed to run as long as we run. <laughs> You know, Jeez. evolution being what it was, you get mature, you reproduce, then you rack off. You're a waste of resources, you know, right. basically. But now we live long beyond that. And, and in a good way, very fortunately, our brain's one of the ones that survives the longest, actually, intact in that little steel case called your skull up there. It's actually very protected against the environment. And so unlike a lot of your external world, your skin, your muscles, joints, which all take the battering, your teeth of everyday life, your gut of everyday life, your brain's actually pretty protected, which is good, but it's not uh, foolproof. It's actually still subject to the environment, obviously. Mm. Okay, so let's have a look at the middle of that period. Say, just pick an age at random, 55, my age. For example. <laughs> For example. If I were pitted against my 25-year-old self and we were given a number of exercises, say – some unusual maths problems, a creative writing task, a few other things, who would who would win? Okay, now this happens in IQ testing all the time. Yeah. And I hate this. I hate this because people care. say that 50, the Yeah, it's because people say 55-year-olds are not as good as 25-year-olds. 
Yeah. And I go, hang on a second, just hang on, just stop right there. Are we using time-based tasks or number of correct answers? Oh. So my 25-year-old self would be quicker, but I might get a higher score? Yeah, quicker but dumber. Yeah, that's right. Ah. So, and you see this in – I mean, sport's a great example. How long can you open the batting for Australian cricket team before actually you're too slow to the ball, you know, in various ways? So motor speed starts to decline yeah. from basically late 20s onwards, okay? So kids are really good at motor speeds. So I used to say – I can't say it anymore, but I used to say about my 12-year-old, he can beat me on any computer game that doesn't involve any planning, right, can react to the stimuli, can do all those things from about age six onwards. Anything that involves planning or planning three or four screens in front, I can beat him. That used to be the case. Now he's older and 16, 18, he can beat me at everything. You know, but that learning, if, if, if IQ is accumulated knowledge and the, and the use of that, no, your 55-year-old self is better because it's actually got more experience, more contingencies, and as long as it's got time to get the answer and it isn't a time here's the, task. Here's, I reckon, a, a good hypothetical. Pick an author who's written heaps and heaps of books. Let's say Ag- Agatha Christie. Uh, she's written, I think it's 60, maybe 70 murder mysteries. Uh, at the start, her mind might have been quicker. At the end, she would have had more craft and she would have known more and learnt more about how to do it. Would there be a golden period? Say she wrote, I'm just making this up, from 20 to 70. You know, would there be a golden period where you expect uh, the energy and creativity of youth to be melded with the experience and skills of of an older age? See, I'm going to disagree with you. I don't know that young people are energetic and creative. I reckon old people are. No. Yeah, right. Well, they've got this sort of useless energy. Yeah, they can stay up later. They can stay awake longer. But actually be cruel or creative, not necessarily. I think you should drag out Picasso's great sort of periods and, you know, many great artists who yeah. got better and better and better and they got more creative. Now, of course, the Agatha Christie one, she might have been said to be in a bit of a rut, okay? There is this issue of doing stuff different <laughs> and getting out of stuff that, you know, makes a lot of money and just doing the same thing over and over and being more experimental. Like so Picasso. Like Picasso, what you see with many great artists and whatever is they actually got more experimental as they got older and older. Yep. I was in a marvellous album the other day of Yo-Yo Ma, the cello player, right? He's had it with being the world's greatest cello player. He's now into the experimental period. It's much more interesting in really? a particular kind of way. Yeah, so having learnt the craft and perfected the craft and the skill when they were young, okay, guess what? Now I'm going to do really creative things. And guess what? They're more creative and be more influenced by other stuff. So I think the... One of the problems for ageing is if we get in a rut, if we just learn how to do something and keep doing it, we get less creative because we're just doing it and maybe it earns money and maybe we're good at it and maybe we just couldn't be bothered anymore. But if you look at the really great artists, and I'd say this in literature, I love the Nobel Prize winners who are in their 70s, you know, and doing their best work because they've, they've gone off the reservation. They've gone off piss. They're mm. just really doing creative stuff, whether you like it or not. They're no longer interested in popularity. They're interested in differences. And I have just had a quick look at um, Agatha Christie's bibliography, and some of her best work that I've read were written, uh, it appears, when she was about 80 years old. Some of her best books right at the end. So there you go. So if you think a great novelist yourself, or ones you really like, I mean, I, and I think, so pick the Picasso one in the area, novelists or other creative people, it may not be their most popular work. 
But, you know, when you go to the aficionados in these areas, they'll go, actually, their best work, their most mm-hmm. original work. And I hate this because it's said about young scientists and others. Oh, yeah, they won their Nobel Prize for something they did when they were 18 or 20. Sometimes <laughs> people did stuff off the wall because they weren't listening and they just, you know, they stumbled across something really brilliant and they happened to do that. But it's actually not true. It's actually you've got the combination of experience and sometimes people will actually take more risks when they're less, less fussed about popular approval and they've gone off. They've mastered the craft, but they've gone off into the creative world. So you're 55 and up, James. Your best years are in front of you. Are ahead, yes. Yes. As but long as you don't have to make money or popular appeal, okay, because then you could be in trouble. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I've, that's never been a danger for me. Um Let's not pretend, though, the decline in physical function as we get older is obviously inevitable, no matter how well you take care of your body. Is decline in cognitive function also inevitable, or can you escape it? I mean, it seems less kind of linear than than decline in physical – like, you can look at someone and have a pretty good idea if they're 70 or 80 or 90, but to just listen to them talk – you know, there's a much greater variation in cognitive function in the old, isn't there? Yeah. So loss of cognitive function with age is not inevitable. So age-related diseases become more common. Blood vessel diseases, degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease, other dimensions, unfortunately, do become more common as you age and maybe affect up to about 20% of older people and then result in marked deterioration in cognitive function but they're age-related diseases. They're not age itself. So right. if, you can, if you can preserve as much of your brain function, it had to be nice to your brain from 25 onwards, okay? You've got to think at 25. I've got to keep this thing active if I live long enough into my age. So, so that means, so just to reiterate, keeping your brain active, giving it novelty, taking care of your body um, and staying physically active, ensuring that the things you put into your body aren't things that are going to be bad for your brain. Yeah, so this is the long-term preventive health kind of point of view, you know, good sleep-wake cycles, good physical activity, minimising alcohol and other drugs, treating your diabetes, treating your hypertension, doing all those other things. These, these things affect the whole body, but they catch up. What you do see in older people, of course, you do see what we do earlier. It's very obvious to tell people's age by the fact they're slower. They don't run up hills in quite the same way. Although I saw a bloke the other day running up a hill with a walking stick. I thought I was really impressed. You know, very good. Running up with a walking stick faster than me. You know, actually, that's kind of what we love to see. So there are motor movement problems that certainly are happening and speed problems that are certainly happening. But other aspects of cognitive function, you don't necessarily lose your memory. You don't lose your wisdom. You may take longer to, to certain issues, but actually staying active. Now, one of the problems is the idea of retirement. Oh, well, stop being active. Like, you know, just sit down, have a good rest, <laughs> have a sleep for the afternoon, go and lie on a beach or something. Bad idea, bad idea. Got to stay engaged, got to be active, got to be doing things, and still got to be doing novel things, got to do new things. So this whole idea, learn another language, learn a new sport, learn a new thing, new, learn a new skill. So actually, novelty and challenge matters. So the brain responds to challenge. Don't you hate this? In order to make new brain connections, you've got to do new things, and they have to be hard things, not easy things. They can't be things you've done a thousand times before. You have right. to challenge yourself to do more. Great time to write your first best novel, James, although you've already done that. So now you're going to do your most creative novel. You know, you're going to go off what you know well and take a few chances and do something really hard in a particular way. So, you know, 
or something you haven't mastered previously, now would be a good time. I have never mastered other languages. I just find it really hard. But, you know, these are the sort of things, or it may include something else like a musical instrument or some other particular thing, something that really does require a lot of cognitive skill and then a lot of brain coordination to do it. That's what you need to be doing as you age to keep driving it to make new connections as you do age. It's the connections. The connections make – I love this. It's, it's not how big your brain is. It's how wrinkly is your brain. Apparently, Einstein had one of the world's wrinkliest brains. <laughs> you know, lots right. of stuff, lots of wrinkles, meaning it's the curvature of the brain, it's the connection of the brain, it's the cortex itself is actually not the size that matters but the wrinkliness of it. So think of it as you age. You want as wrinkly a brain as you can through as much brain activity, through as many new synaptic connections. Are there parts of the brain that are more vulnerable to deterioration and other parts less vulnerable? For example, memory and even specific parts of memory. Some people have said, I can remember what I did 40 years ago. I can't remember what I did this morning. Yeah, so when memory's on the blink, the bit that you lose first is immediate memory. Like, what mm. had, what did you have for breakfast? Like, what did I do 10 minutes ago? And it's new things, things that I just happened or learnt yesterday. So inevitably, when people age and they're having memory difficulties, they can't tell you where the car keys are. They can't tell you where they put their wallet. They can't tell you who came to visit yesterday. But they start to tell you a story from their childhood. They start to tell you in great detail what exactly happened 70 years ago. And that's all preserved. So long-term memory, which is laid down in a different way, it's stored. Like they're dusting off the filing cabinets and they're pulling out the same old stories. For those of us who know me well, my grandchildren are going to tell the same old story again. Yes, because I know it well. It's <laughs> <You know? laughs> very It's well laid down. It's well matured, that sort of story. Whereas actually new memories, make, making new memories, holding new memories, different kind of brain function, and it is more sensitive to brain-related diseases that we were discussing earlier on. So with these sort of working memories and new memories, you've got to stick at it there. They're now just going, oh, no, I've just got a bit old. Forget it. You've got to stick at it. I had a great example where I was very fortunate to have a beer with Bob Hawke before he died huh? at Sydney University. You know, fortunately, unfortunately for Bob, he was sitting down and he couldn't run away when I came over because his knees were no good. But I took the opportunity of sitting down next to him and he goes, he just story after story, and I say, like, and he just rattled off fabulous things. I said, well, his brain, and he, despite his well-known alcohol problems and everything else when he was younger, was just in fabulous condition quite late in his life. And he was going on about how much Sudoku he did every day and how much crossword he did every day and all the things he was doing deliberately every day with his working memory and whatever to keep it functioning his whole life in a particular way. I suggested it was the socialisation that he was doing that was actually doing a good job. Yeah, he's incredibly involved, wanted still to go to every social event he could possibly go to. But he was actively involved in using those bits of the brain that otherwise are at risk as you age. Is our thinking or our feeling, our thoughts or our emotions, do they deteriorate if they do deteriorate in a, in a different way? So when things start to fall apart, if you are subject to it and you've got some of these things going on, either through blood vessel disease, through vascular disease, or some degree of neurodegeneration, bits can become disconnected again. So the frontal bit that normally controls emotionality can become less good at it. So sometimes you see in older people the re-emergence of a kind of an emotionality 
and a loss of control, things that were well, in, well inhibited, well kept under control in their 60s and 70s, suddenly they're much more emotional, they're much more easily upset, they're much more agitated, they may become much more irritable, some ways may become more disinhibited than they were. That, that's indicative that those intrinsic processes that got cabled together as adolescents to become coherent are starting to become disconnected again. Now, again, it's not ageing per se, but it is indicative that age-related diseases have started to catch up with and are starting to cause the cables to become disconnected again. So emotionality becomes disconnected from inhibition and uh, the sort of having it all together, which you appear to have it all together when you were still 60 and 70, you appear to be actually losing bits and they appear to be becoming disconnected. Emotionality from thinking, being emotional in places you don't want to be emotional, being disinhibited in places where you don't want to be disinhibited, saying things that you really shouldn't say, Grant. You shouldn't say that. You know, when your, when your kids start saying to you, you shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't have said that. You know, that was the wrong thing to say. Oh, no, I'll just say what I like at this age. You know, got to be a bit careful about those kind of things because those things may be indicative that actually mm. uh, a person has started to lose the normal whole of the brain working in synchrony with its, with its different parts, its emotionality, its cognition, its social recognition. So if we began this journey uh, at birth, in fact, before birth, so I guess we should end it at death. Uh, when we die, I guess the brain just, what, shuts down, stops working, goes yeah. to heaven? <laughs> so as I think Kerry Packer famously said, he went to the other side, there was nothing there. <laughs> no. So you do see in, unfortunately, in brain injury and in brain death, in particular, this is kind of classic kind of thing, when are you dead? You're dead when your heart stops or you're dead when your brain stops in a particular way. So, I mean, the brain is tied up within the whole physiology. Once you stop, pump, once you stop pumping oxygen, you stop sending stuff up there, it's a bit of live tissue. It stops it quietly wilds down. And you can, all, and you can see and you see in certain situations in, in brain death where the front bits go off and the others go off and the last bit of the brain stem at the back, which drives breathing and heart rate, all those basic functions, it's the last bit to turn off. And after it turns off, nothing more. Mm. The brain's gone. so it is. The brain's gone because it controls breathing and heart rate and all those other sets of functions. But it itself, it depends. You know, if your heart stops for long enough, not too long, then your brain stops. You know, it it is actually dependent on blood supply and oxygen and glucose and everything else because it's a lot. You can restart issue. the heart. Can you restart the brain, or once it's off, it's off? This is a fascinating question. What a good question, James. We should have another episode devoted to that because when people have disappeared, you know, into frozen lakes and stuff, you know, yeah, <laughs> you know, and their heart stopped, and then they, they go, oh my god, their brain dead, and then like, like really remarkably, like twenty minutes later, they restart them and pop up, and brain's on again. So, brain tissue actually doesn't die quickly. It does turn off though rather quickly, and if you can turn those other functions back on. Then, and if you're fortunate, now there's a limit to this. Don't try this at home, okay? <laughs> there's a limit to this. Then remarkably, it seems that many brain functions will come back on, but there's a limit. So right. tissue death, like everywhere else in the rest of the body, happens at a certain point. It doesn't – these low-temperature examples where it's basically been in the fridge, then it's not, it's not decomposing at the same rate. But brain will decompose like every other tissue – through a lack of supply of oxygen, et cetera, et cetera. So to some extent after those particular incidents like heart attack or people have sudden things or drop themselves in lakes, there have been remarkable stories of restarting and then the brain comes on again. There you go. Well, when, the tissues, is, when the tissue is still there. That is the brain from beginning to, uh, 
to end. Hope you found it interesting, perhaps even useful if you've got any questions or comments or want to suggest other topics for us to delve into. Do send us an email at mindingyourmind2 at gmail.com. That's mindingyourmind numeral2 at gmail.com. Minding Your Mind is supported by Future Generation Global and the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health. Further help is available from Headspace, Beyond Blue, Head to Health and Lifeline. Just Google them. You can call Lifeline on 13 Talk to you next time.